Thank you very much indeed for coming to this uh, discussion of the Red Barn, and I'm incredibly privileged to present John Simonon. Uh, it's just, uh, it's an incredibly difficult play and subject to discuss, um, not because it's a whodunit and that revealing the ending will reveal, you know, anything that you don't know, but the ending of the play is so ingrained in what the play is that it may be almost impossible for us to discuss not necessarily without saying what the ending is, but maybe indicating in what direction the play is heading. Um, and so we'll try and restrain ourselves from spoilers, shall we? I'll do my best. Uh, but, it, but it's yeah. really, really difficult. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask John is that obviously you, um, a lot of people don't know a great deal about Simonon. <clears throat> they don't know that he was Belgian and not French. And they don't know that for a while he lived in America, immediately after the war. Yes, he moved there just after 1945, so just about after the war, correct. And, <clears throat> and that although this book, um, which was called The Man on the Bench in the Barn, when it was originally published in England. I had nothing to do with that translated uh, title. <laughs> Um, and in England has always been one of the more obscure of his books. In other words, when I discovered this book, which I was given as a first night present by Bill Nye, um, I had never heard of it, and I was quite a Simonon aficionado, and I'd never, I'd never heard of this particular book. Um, but although he wrote it in the late 60s, it is set in something pretty similar to the house in which John was brought up in Connecticut. And for those of you who have seen the play, the house is pretty similar, isn't it, to, to the house that you were brought up? Well, in, in his mind, uh, he was just describing that house and especially that barn, because that barn was part of the property. <clears throat> and the, uh, the rock, uh, that big rock that uh, is, you know, the part of the name of the property, it was called uh, Shadow Rock Farm, um, was also there. So when I read the book, and, and I have to be honest, uh, it's not the first one that I read. I knew that it had been written because it was written when I was uh, still uh, living with my father in, uh, in another house uh, in Switzerland. Uh, it took me a while to, uh, to read La Main, and, uh, and therefore, um, you know, I'm not going to say it was totally obscure to me, but it was not the one that I read first by far. So I discovered it pretty much, rediscovered it thanks to you. But anyway, to go back to the house, yes, uh, it feels very familiar when I read the, the book and when I saw even the, even the, 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 the setting uh, of, uh, of, the, of the house is very quite familiar, was familiar to me. And, yeah. and would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yes, definitely. I mean, that part of it, yes. Uh, you know, but I think all childhoods are pretty happy, uh, even for those who have a difficult one. The difficult part for me was being a teenager. That, that, that's a different story. But was that, when <laughs> back, was that back in France or in Switzerland? In or? Switzerland, yeah, yeah. And that was more difficult? Yeah, but you know, not because of my father or because of anything else. It's just because being a teenager is difficult in general. And for me, it was very difficult because I probably was more of a rebel than, uh, than others. Why do you think your father went to live in the United States? He had always thought about it, you know, that's an idea he had uh, when he first went to, he went to the United States first in the early 30s as part of a round the world trip. <clears throat> and uh, he, he'd always thought that he would get back there uh, because he was very impressed by the little that he saw while, it, while he was in New York. He didn't stay very long, just a few days. 
<clears throat> but then, um, and before the war, he, and during the war, actually, he, he, you know, he was thinking about how he could, uh, he, he could get there. Uh, it was not very easy because as a foreigner in, in occupied uh, France, his movements were not, you know, he, was, he, he had to report to the Commandant Tour just about every week. Uh, he had a family, um, a wife and a child, so uh, he had to wait. And almost as soon as he got to America, he and his wife split up and he found a new wife, is that right? Everything was new. Yeah. I mean, new wife, new country, new life, new way of writing, uh, new In what new way, new way of writing? Well, he was, you know, he's very well known for having, um, uh, he had a set, um, um, uh, how would I say it, um, uh, way of doing things in the in his second part of his life, which was to, to first write uh, uh, longhand with uh, pencils and then type the chapter that he'd written in the morning, type it in the afternoon, uh, just to trim it uh, even further. Uh, but that started as he arrived in the United States. And his first manuscript, the first ever, is, uh, is the one of um, Three Beds in Manhattan, which, yeah. we, which we mentioned. Uh, and uh, clearly, that, uh, that is one of the first books he wrote when he arrived in the States, after having met my mother. For those, of you, autobiographical, who, for those of you who don't <coughs> know, um, Simenon was amazingly prolific. So we believe there are about 400 novels, is that right? Under his own name, uh, that's a bit pushing, but uh, 250, yes. 250, yes. yes of which something like 110 are what are called romans durs, is that right? Uh, well, uh, more than that. Um, yeah, more, more than 150 are the romans durs, non maigre if you yeah. Know, yeah. I mean, the, the books divide <coughs> into the maigre series, which obviously are for more familiar to the English, mostly through the television series. If, you, if you're my age, the television series with Rupert Davis. Uh, which really was essential viewing uh, in the days when there were only three television channels and so everybody watched the same things. So Maigret was very much part of the culture. But we didn't realize that Simonon had also written standalone novels. And as I grew up, then I became more and more interested in the standalone novels, which I think he also regarded as his real work. Is that right? Yes, I mean, he was a little bit, at, at one point he considered, May, well, Maigret was meant to be only one step because he decided when he started writing Maigret, which were the first uh, novels he wrote under his own name in uh, 1931, he announced uh, at the time, he, he, just after he released the first two books, that he was going to stop writing Maigret novels uh, within three years. Uh, which he did, actually, <laughs> because he used to do what he said, and he would say what he did. Uh, and um, so it took, it, it's really because of the circumstances of the war that he went back to Maigret, uh, simply because it was difficult to find paper at that time, uh, and that uh, he had to find a way to publish stories that could actually be uh, published in newspapers. Yes. Um, and uh, so the Maigret stories lend themselves to that, short stories. And when he went, then he goes to the States, and this is where he goes back to Maigret uh, with full-fledged um, uh, novels. We were talking about um, <coughs> a writer who is so amazingly prolific before we, before we came on. And you quoted to me this extraordinary thing your father said about being an apprentice for 10 years and, what, and why he believed in writing so quickly and how he could write so quickly. 
Well, at first he considered, uh, you know, he didn't consider being a writer a gift. He considered it really being more a vocation of pain than, than anything else. And uh, because it's something that he never felt he could do anything else, uh, he also considered that to be a real trade that had to be learned. Uh, just like a painter used to go around Italy to learn about from the masters, like you learn how to play an instrument, you learn music. Uh, in France, at least, you don't really learn much about writing, but he decided that he would do that. Uh, and it took him about 10 years to learn how to, uh, how to bring uh, characters in and out of a novel and uh, interact, etc., so that it would become uh, second nature. Um, and he could let his, um, I don't like the word inspiration, but for lack of a better word, for like his... Uh, his mind uh, flow with the characters because he never knew except in very rare occasions how the story would end uh, including this particular play that you're going to see this evening he starts with the character puts him in a particular circumstances and then just follows them uh, he's being inhabited by them and because of the energy it took to get into their skin and not only the main character but all the characters uh, he just didn't have the energy to do that for much more than 10, 10 days. So he, he didn't write, you know, it, it's a result, not a cause, that, uh, you know, he was so fast. It's just you, because he could you, not sustain You told me he characters. compared it to playing a musical instrument. So yeah. it's, in other words, he said that just as the violinist doesn't want to have to think about how to play the violin, similarly, the writer shouldn't be thinking about how to write. Exactly. They should know how to write. What they should be thinking about is what they're writing about. about and the so characters. the technical business of actually writing the words down is ought to be a formality because you've learned a professional skill. Is that right? Yeah, he had to let himself be carried by the characters that he had um, that he'd encountered in his preparation, and he had to be carried by their life and their lives, and he would just have to follow them. But that takes a lot of energy to follow characters, you know, through a story that you don't know. And that's really the best, I think, that, you know, um, that's how he described his own, his own work. But at the same time, I, I don't want us to be carried away too much all about Simonon, because I want also to have a chance to ask you a few questions about yourself and about <laughs> your own, yeah, 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 but let's, you know. But, yeah. But Please, it, this it, is a rare opportunity go, for me. Well, okay. a, good, a, good, a good bridge towards that, <laughs> a good bridge towards that would be to say, without spoiling the ending of the play, uh, for those of you who have not yet seen it, um, that his, you say that he's carried by the characters, but on, on the other hand, his view of life is almost invariably tragic, isn't it? Yes, clearly. Uh, he didn't see his life as being particularly happy. Yeah. He didn't believe in, uh, in bonheur. Uh, I don't know how to translate the meaning, the French meaning of that, but in, uh, uh, f he believed in, uh, I was taught all my childhood to, to gather the small joys of life as little pebbles that you put aside, uh, but never to expect to encounter the big, huge uh, moment of, uh, of uh, grand uh, happiness. Um, and I think that's what um, his characters go through, except they have a very most of the time, they, because they, they find themselves, and this is how he defined his novels, is to take normal characters. All the characters of my father are normal people. They're not extraordinary, and this is something you clearly uh, mentioned. They're not scandy people, you know. They, they are what we have in ourselves in terms of our potential to be, to be, to be criminals or whatever. 
So he would take these people and put them in a particular circumstances that would push them to the very end of their fate. And that fate is never very happy. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's, it's true that I, I was incredibly struck by um, the French Prime Minister after the Bataclan attack. And he said the most extraordinary thing in public in response to the attack. And he said, we have forgotten that life is fundamentally tragic, um, which seemed a quite extraordinary thing for a serving politician to say. Um, and your father's view of life is completely Greek in that sense, isn't it? There, there is no good outcome, really. Rarely. There are some. There are some times when there is a good outcome, but uh, it's definitely not the majority of the stories. And clearly, the people that, you know, when he explores the mind of his characters, he explores them in a situation that basically, after all, um, going as far back as the Greeks, that, you know, life, what they, what they write about is tragedy. Yes. And they're not, they're not doing tragedies just for the sake of doing tragedies. I think they're writing tragedies because that's, that's really the meaningful of life. Yes. The meaning of life. Really. Yes. Uh, we have to face it. And, and if it's the best way to deal with it is to, is to um, not to hide it for ourselves. Yes, I mean, he's, he's, he's very hard <coughs> on people who fool themselves about things. Very yes. much so, yeah. The, the thing is to be truthful about and not be fooled in life, isn't that right? Not be fooled and especially not fool yourself. Yes. And, or find excuses. I, I, one of the things we mentioned about is that, uh, you know, my father raised me in, a, in, in the religion of hating self-pity. So, you know, every time uh, I was caught doing something wrong, I tried to find an excuse or whatever, and he was always telling me, well, you know, make sure, you know, you make sure you, you, you keep away of doing these things. Accept the fact that you've done it and uh, try, to, try to get better out of it. Just don't whine and complain about that terrible fate that has fallen, fallen on you, you know. You said a wonderful thing about how he's, um, he's, he's the only Russian writer to have written in the French language. That's, that's my feeling, yes. <laughs> well, I was raised also in, you know... Because it was Chekhov, Dostoevsky, and who? And Gogol. And Gogol. And Gogol, yes. Yeah. yes. They are the masters, as yeah. far as he's concerned. Yes. yes, yes, definitely. These were the three. And yeah. these are the ones that he asked me to read. You know, when I asked him about, you know, what can I read, what, I should, I, what should I read, these were the first three that he, he mentioned. Um, then there were a few afterwards, like, uh, now, non-Russian. But they were Anglo. They were Anglo-Saxon. There were it was Conrad. It was uh, Stevenson, um, and um, and he was in this very much later Balzac. He was in this yes. He was in this hilarious position of being admired by writers that he himself didn't admire. Is that, isn't that right? Oh, one <laughs> what writer. I mean is she no, 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 no. This it's unfair because he admired Faulkner. He admired quite a few. But he didn't uh, admire Gide. Uh, he he liked. He admired the man. He just didn't admire his writing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a different story. He just felt that Gide was not a, a novelist. Yeah. Which, to be honest, I think he was not too wrong about that. <laughs> to, so to talk about this particular, the particular book and the particular play and to move on to that, um, it's an unusual book of your father's in the sense that it is about bourgeois characters rather than petty bourgeois characters, isn't it? Because, as you say, so often it's about... Um, you know, people who have absolutely no power or luck in life at all, 
who are, as it, as it were, near the bottom, isn't it, that he represents in many of his books? Yes, uh, la, what he called um, um, les petits gens, the yeah. small little people. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of, uh, and he was, mind, a lot of people got completely mistaken, think, taking that, um, that attraction that he, the, he felt, that empathy he had for these people as being populist, he, that he was total uh, opposite of a populist. He just felt a lot of empathy for people who struggle in life. Uh, and who are not necessarily, um, you know, who are doing their best to make the most of what they've got. Um, in this particular respect, these people, uh, you know, are certainly um, well off. They, they are successful. Yeah. They don't see necessarily all of them. Okay, I stop here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the play is a lot, has a lot to do with how people perceive themselves in the eyes of, through the eyes of the other protagonist. And, and it is a wonderful, that's the way I perceived it. I, it's one of the great things about being in my position is that I, I knew the book, but then I did rediscovered the book through, uh, through David's uh, interpretation, I would say, more than adaptation. And uh, it's a way to, to discover layers that in my reading had remained in the shadow. And um, so this is for me an engrossing experience. Well, the particular sense. excitement of adapting this, this work is that it's a first-person narrative. And I've been involved before in doing first-person narratives. And they always involve, you know, stream of consciousness and telling the reader what is going on in the head of the protagonist. Um, and in this particular story, and again, I don't, I, I, I'm really trying not to spoil it. Uh, but the central character in this, in this book becomes convinced that people are taking a certain view of him. And because of that, um, and, it, and it would be true to say, and I'm not spoiling the play by saying that the play is largely about men's fear of women and about the fear that women know something, experience something, understand something, and see right through you, it's, and, and, and see through men and that when men are seen through, they feel searched out in a way that they found profoundly uncomfortable. And so the interest in ad adapting it is always that, therefore, I have to invent scenes, or I have to invent situations, or I have to invent dialogue, which there's no need for in the book, because in the book, the hero is telling you exactly what he's thinking and feeling, because the convention is you're allowed to do that when you write a first-person narrative. So I always like that, when I'm adapting things, because it simply gives me more freedom. Uh, it's an interesting challenge, that, rather than, as it were, slapping down scenes. And as you say, people get into a terrible mess adapting Simonon if they think, oh, I'll just put the events down. And, you know, his writing appears to be cinematic in the sense that it's full of atmosphere, it's full of rich, interesting characters, oh, we'll just, we'll put that down and that will, that will become a film. And somehow, if you do that, the whole meaning of what he's doing drains away because actually he's writing like a Greek and what he's, what he's really interested in is man's tragic destiny underneath this surface. But it's always the surface that you get a lot of the mark and the pipe and the, the hat and all, and all that stuff, um, which isn't really what he's writing about. It's just the way he's writing. And I think one point that I would like to make, which is particularly true, um, well, it is true in this case, but it's also true when, when you look into uh, Maigret, for example. My father feels a great deal of empathy for, 
for human beings. He, he feels a great deal of true empathy for, for that tragic life that, uh, that they have to face most of the time. And therefore, and this is not the case, there's no villain in this particular uh, story, um, but, um, but criminals, in, 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 in my father's view, are all never extraordinary people. They're very, they're people who could be you and I, you know, they're, they're the people, uh, they're the criminals that lies deep inside us. And um, that is, uh, it's very re important to remember, just like his description of the relationship between men and women is definitely, and you, you pointed that out in, in your article, and this is so rare that, you know, that I really want to thank you for this, <laughs> because they confuse that fear and they confuse that uh, difficult yes. difficulty in relationship between men and women. They confuse that for, for misogyny, which uh, my father, despite everything that's been written about that, really wasn't. I can guarantee you that, because uh, I had access to his, uh, his letters to my mother, and uh, these are not the letters of a misogynist. There, there's such hostility and violence towards women in the play and in the book that the mistake is to look at it and say, oh, this is a misogynistic work. Yeah. But it's not. Mm -hmm. It's about men not being able to cope with the power that women have and being frightened of the power that women have. And he actually portrays women immensely powerful, rather too powerful, if anything, for the men who cannot cope with them. The particular attraction of the play, of the book for me, and you know, this was pure chance. I was given this book and I'd never heard of it. And indeed, I think it's been out of print since the original edition in the end of the 1960s. Yeah. It's just recently been reprinted by Penguin and is on sale in the bookshop. And they've, they've reprinted it to coincide with this production, but it had vanished. And the reason I loved it was because it described a moment at which America was changing, and although he lived there in the 1950s, he has that usual porousness that great writers have, where he's able to write about a moment where something's on the cusp of change. And so people are living in a community in Connecticut, and they've got traditional old family values. The wife in the family is of old American stock, the Claibans, and they've lived in this particular way, they have these particular values, they live their life in a way which is decent. And meanwhile, in Manhattan, his friend Ray is living the new life, the life that you see the hippies have arrived, the, uh, the morals are changing, everything is, is, is disappearing fast, from, and Connecticut feels like an island of a redoubt against the modern world. And during the course of the play, Donald, the central character, played by Mark Strong, comes to realize that the life that he's lived, the bourgeois life that he's lived in, the, um, in, in Connecticut, is a false life, that he's lied to himself about the satisfactions of the bourgeois life and the values and the standards of the bourgeois life. Um, so he tries to make a leap towards freedom but as always in Simonon, <laughs> a leap towards freedom is a disaster. Uh, as, you, as you put it, you realize something about yourself, but actually the facts, if you start examining who you really are, you may not be totally at peace with what you discover. Isn't that the way you put it? Well, it takes a lot of doing, yeah. Uh, it's facing who you are or who you, or who you 
think you may be, yeah. is, I think is one of the biggest challenges that we face. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I was also raised in that kind of atmosphere and that kind of uh, uh, vision of life. Um, I was raised for, you know, every week I would hear um, a, a word from my father that was in French, I'm sorry, the métier d'homme est difficile. And it's a very difficult one to, uh, to translate, but roughly it means uh, being a man is difficult. Or, and it means facing what we are and, and being able to make the most out of who we are despite our failings is a difficult task. Yeah, I think in the play, Donald and faces who and he that's is. What he exactly. And he is not made comfortable by the discovery of who he is. And so he can neither, and this is always true in your father's work, he can't go back. No. And having made the discovery about who he is and what he is, it's absolutely impossible for him to return to the old life. On the other hand, he can't move on to the new life. Isn't that right? Well, it's a one-way street. There's, yeah. there's no way back, just like you said. And, and most of the novels, the, the romans durs, yeah. the real, real romans durs, uh, in very different settings, in very different ways, with different kinds of um, uh, characters, will address that particular... Um, that that particular theme, to the point where, you know, to my great surprise, when I read my first Simonon book in, you know, as an adult, in 19, I was 35, I decided to read uh, a book you mentioned, which is uh, The Snow Was Dirty. Dirty Snow. <coughs> yeah, I think it's usually called Dirty Snow. <coughs> it now. used to be. Now, no, now it's, now it's they went back to the, to the very literal uh, translation. And that sentence, Le métier d'homme est difficile. Yeah. I found it in there. And, you know, it's an incredible um, uh, feeling to see that, you know, your upbringing goes, you know, you find part of yourself in, in not yourself as, uh, as a uh, um, superficial character, but what is really the meaning of the life that <coughs> you were raised in, you find it in a, in a, in a book that you're reading. Uh, I think that it's um, without um, giving away the ending of the play, um, I think it is true to say that the people who dislike, <coughs> dislike the play um, dis dislike the play's ending. And that's where they focus their discontent with the play and say, I do not accept this ending to the play. Um, but the play is so completely true to Simonon's the end of the play is so completely true to Simonon's view of life that really what, what, what you're saying, if you say I don't like the ending, is I don't accept the way Simonon sees the world. And maybe a bit David Hare as well, no, don't you think so? Because uh, <laughs> it seems to me that the play wouldn't be what it is if you didn't share a great deal of that, of that feeling. Well, I think that the, the play, it, it would be true to say... <laughs> It, it would be true to say that the play certainly takes a very sceptical view about bourgeois life. I think, I think by, the, by the end of the evening, bourgeois life is in tatters, don't you? Uh, and we, uh, we, haven't, we haven't really I think we can, done I, much I think, in, the, in I, think we, I think we can agree that. And I think that, therefore, um, I think that some people find the ending of the play extremely hard to take because of that. Well, it is hard to take. Yeah. But again, it... I think I see it as we don't have any choice. Yeah. That's, that's what we have to be able to face at one point or another, we, without going to that extreme, of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, it is, it is, a, it is a very noir uh, book. It is, it is a noir 
play as well. And if we're talking, you know, the way we are, it doesn't reflect, uh, you know, it shouldn't take away how, how serious the whole, the whole play is. Yeah. And the book. Totally. Thank you very much indeed. indeed.